Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Once fishes as big as turkeys and sheep swam the seas. Now, most of their few remaining descendants would fit into a frying pan. Dr. Elliot A. Norse, president of the Marine Biology Conservation Institute in Redmond, Washington, believes that this radical reduction in the size and number of the world's fishes comes not only from overfishing, the catching of fish at a rate faster than they can breed, but also from bottom trawling. Dr. Norris writes that bottom trawling crushes, buries, and exposes marine creatures like lobsters, crustaceans, clams, corals, and sponges that live on or in the seabed and damages and kills them. In August of 1999, Dr. Norris visited with Radio Curious to discuss the effects of bottom trawling, how and where it's done, and some of the concerns and causes of global warming and the effect it has on the oceans. We began when I asked him what some of the problems of bottom trawling are. Fishing is an important activity. Uh, uh, it, it, it puts food on our tables and provides income for a lot of people around the world. But all human activities have environmental consequences. And here's a case where we have not until very real, recently realized what some of the consequences are. Uh, bottom trawling is a method of fishing where uh, nets, weighted nets, are dragged along the bottom. That's why trawlers are sometimes called draggers. And uh, these weighted nets not only catch the fish that we want to catch, which is uh, a, a useful activity, they also catch fish and other organisms we don't want to catch. And the weight of the nets and the movement of the net across the bottom crushes or exposes or buries lots of marine organisms. It stirs up the bottom of the seabed. It stirs up the bottom of the seabed. It crushes delicate living things on the bottom of the seabed. And that has consequences of many sorts. Well, tell us about those consequences, how far-reaching they are and what they are. Well, uh, I, sh I should give you a little context here. Uh, disturbance is something that happens in ecosystems uh, in the sea as on land. By disturbance, I mean uh, physical changes that damage or kill organisms. Uh, familiar kinds of disturbances on land are windstorms and earthquakes and fires. Uh, even, even the impact of raindrops is a kind of disturbance as well. The problem is that uh, in the sea, as on land, there are some communities that are much more vulnerable to disturbance than others. These tend to be the ones that don't get disturbed very often naturally. And so the organisms that live in them uh, don't have uh, 
don't have mechanisms of dealing with disturbance. And when the OZ ecosystems are disturbed by people, such as via bottom trawling, when people trawl the seabed to catch fish, the organisms that live on the seabed and in the seabed are crushed, killed, etc., damaged in many ways. And that's an increasing concern among marine scientists. Well, let's talk about the frequency of this um, and what really happens in terms of, um, of the life of these creatures at the bottom of the sea. Well, frequency is one of the keys because um, we have been looking, my, my colleagues and I, Dr. Les Watling of the University of Maine and a, a number of other scientists and I, uh, have been looking at trawling as a marine environmental impact. And one of the things we've done is compiled uh, a list of how often certain places on the seabed are trawled. And we were amazed by what we found. Well, what, what is it that you found? Well, we found that some places get trawled once a year, meaning if you were to take, oh, say, a golf ball and sit it on the seabed, chances are even that golf ball would be picked up in a trawl net once every year. Other places are trawled two times, three times, up to seven or ten times a year. And uh, these are extensive areas. For example, one that we're talking about is George's Bank in the northeastern United States off the coast of Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Maine. And George's Bank gets trawled an average of about three times a year. So that means that on an average of about every four months in any given spot, a trawl net is going to sweep across the bottom, and that has consequences for the animals that live on the seabed. And those consequences are? Well, it, it damages them and it kills them. And the problem is that these organisms uh, form living structures that are important. They're, these organisms are important for their own right. I think all living things are important for their own right, but they're also important because the physical structures they build on the seabed and that they, they build in the mud are important as well for the young of fishes that we catch commercially. For example, little cod. Little cod seem to be attracted to structures on the seabed. And when we eliminate those structures, we eliminate the habitat for little cod. And the reason that's important is because Atlantic cod is one of many fishes that has, that has been devastated in recent years by human activities. We know they're disappearing due to overfishing, but only recently has it been proposed that they're disappearing for another reason, that we are harming their habitat, specifically the habitat for the little ones, the, 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 the babies that have just settled from the plankton and are very vulnerable to predators, and they need little structures, an inch, two inches, three inches tall, structures formed by worms, 
and sponges and things like that that are eliminated when trawlers come through the area every year, every six months, every four months, as happens on George's Bank. So how widespread is bottom trawling? Well, it's done worldwide, uh, almost everywhere, on in, in inshore bays and on the continental shelf. Uh, this is the area above, oh, let's say, 200 meters in depth. Uh, we've, we've got rough calculations that estimate that the world's continental shelves are trawled roughly every other year. So that means uh, chances are, are, are 50-50 or so that an object placed on the seabed would be picked up every 24 months, on average, anywhere on the world's continental shelves. Uh, in deeper waters, trawling never happened before, but it's been happening in the last couple of decades, and we're extending deeper and deeper into the sea. And that's a real problem, because the deep sea has very little natural disturbance, and the organisms that live there aren't adapted to dealing with disturbance. They don't recover from being damaged, from being crushed, from being killed. Yet the organisms on the continental shelf are able to recover? Well, a little more, especially in the shallowest part of the continental shelf. We, we have storms. Um, um, on the east coast and gulf coast, there are hurricanes. There are, there are winter storms on the west coast uh, that cause uh, a lot of turbulence in shallow waters. And this turbulence often wipes out some of the more vulnerable organisms on the seabed. But on the other hand, these organisms have been dealing with this kind of storm damage for eons, and they have ways of either enduring it or recolonizing um, if, if they've been killed. They, they, they reproduce fairly often, and their larvae uh, settle from the plankton and recolonize the sands or muds in the shallows. The problem is in deeper waters, as you get progressively deeper, there's less and less effect from storms. And the, the communities of organisms there are less and less tolerant of disturbance. And those are the places where trawling as a profoundly disturbing activity is really most harmful. So what is the impact of the trawling in these two separate areas? Well. My guess is that in sandy areas, in relatively shallow waters that are affected by storms naturally, the impact of trawling is really pretty minor. In deeper waters, the impact gets greater and greater until when, when you go below the halfway point on the continental shelf, below about 80 or 100 meters, Bottom trawling is the most important kind of disturbance of the seabed worldwide. It's, it's, it's more than all of the natural sources, we believe. And that's a real problem because it kills vast numbers of organisms living on the seabed, and that affects the habitat for the fishes that fishermen and the general public that eats fish is concerned about. So what can we look at in the future if bottom trawling continues the way you describe it? Well, like, you know, the key to the future is to understand the past. 
if we look at the recent past, this is what we see. The world's fisheries are in more and more trouble. Many of the world's fisheries are collapsing. And although a lot of people are wringing their hands and a lot of people are pointing fingers, because everybody always knows the reason, it's somebody else. What we haven't done is looked comprehensively at the health of the marine environment and what's happening to it, uh, uh, particularly a comprehensive examination that fully includes the effects of trawling worldwide. We just don't know what we're doing to fish habitat. The, the federal government now in the United States is beginning to undertake an exercise to look at fish habitat, uh, uh, but where that will lead, I don't know. The, the general trend, though, is that fisheries are in more and more trouble worldwide. And I think we can conclude that if we continue doing things as we have been doing them, that trend will continue. So I think what we have to do is make some changes. My guest this week is Dr. Elliot A. Norse, who is the president of the Marine Conservation Biology Institute based in Redmond, Washington. We're talking about bottom trawling, the unseen worldwide plowing of the seabed. And we're also going to talk in the second half of our program about global climactic change and its effect on the seas. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Elliot, global climactic change, how will that affect the seas? Well, climate is the most important factor determining the distribution and abundance of living things on our planet. Uh, if, if, if you look at the Earth from space, you see that from the North Pole to the equator to the South Pole, living things occur in bands. There are bands that are white because they're perpetually frozen. There are bands that are green because they're lush forest or prairie. There are bands that are tan because they're desert. And this is true in the sea as well as on land. The, these, these climatic bands are, are very strong indicators of the kinds of organisms that live in a particular region. And that is a function of climate. When climate changes, we have enormous changes biologically, changes in the distribution of living things in natural communities. So, and that's true in the sea, just as it is on land. If we change the Earth's climate by adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, and virtually all responsible scientists, all the knowledgeable people, agree that that is a very real prospect, and the great majority of, of scientists uh, working on the issue say that we, we already believe this process is underway, then we're going to change the distribution and abundance of living things we care about. I'll give you an example. Off of Southern California, scientists at Scripps Institution of Oceanography found that between the early 1950s and the mid-1990s, the abundance of zooplankton declined 70 or 80 percent. Zooplankton are the little animals that live in the water column, and they're eaten by 
virtually everything else. Little fish, bigger fish, seabirds, whales, etc. Things that we care about a lot. So when the zooplankton populations decline, we can rightly expect that the populations of these other things that eat them will decline. And that's just one sign that this is a serious concern. What are some of the other signs? Well, I'll give you an example, another California example. Um, scientists at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute looked at marine animals that live in the intertidal zone in Monterey Bay near the Stanford University Hopkins Marine Station. These animals had been surveyed uh, about, oh, 50, 60 years ago, and then they were resurveyed again in the mid-1990s. And what the scientists found is really peculiar. It was peculiar in that animals that live in Monterey Bay that occur mainly in that area and to the north grew much less abundant or actually disappeared. But animals that live in Monterey Bay or areas mainly to the south became more abundant or appeared for the first time. In other words, there seemed to be a shift as if the marine organisms on the central California coast were shifting northward. Southerly ones were moving into Monterey Bay and northerly ones were moving out. And this is exactly what you would expect to happen in a world undergoing warming. Uh, this is likely to be a problem for California and for many other places because warmer conditions change the composition of the species, they cause some things to prosper, they cause some things to get sick and die. And this warming is a result of a human activity? Um, that is one of the hardest things to prove one can imagine. But nevertheless, the scientists in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have concluded the warming that we have seen in this century is very likely caused by human activity. In every way that they've looked at it, the patterns are consistent. The warming is happening where we think it is going to happen first. It's happening in the way that we think it's going to happen. The biota Living things are responding the way we think it's going to happen. The sea level is rising the way we think it would happen. All of the patterns are consistent. What is this human activity that is resulting in warming? Well, more than anything else, it's burning fossil fuel. Uh, fossil fuel is the remains of organisms of the past, trees and marine organisms that today occurs as coal and oil and natural gas. And when we burn this stuff, we take carbon that's locked up in the earth and not affecting the atmosphere, and we put it into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It, it traps heat in the lower levels of the earth's atmosphere. And as a result, of burning these fossil fuels, and also, I might point out, cutting down forests and burning the trees, we are warming the lower level of the Earth's atmosphere. That's the level we live in. 
Well, considering that we have almost six billion people on our Earth, uh, far more than, than ever before and, and exponentially increasing, people are going to uh, need to keep warm, cook their food, and uh, uh, create transportation. What are some of the ways that uh, these needs can be met without burning the fossil fuels? Well, uh, I, I can give you two answers there. The, the impact we have on our environment, including our atmosphere, is really a function of two things. One is how many of us there are, but the other is the way each of us lives. Here in the United States, people are scrapping their little Honda CRXs and little Toyotas and little Fords, and they're buying gigantic Suburbans and Blazers and Tahoes. In other words, they're getting rid of vehicles that weigh less than a ton, and they're buying vehicles that weigh two and a half or three tons. These things get terrible gas mileage. But unfortunately, gasoline is so cheap right now that most people don't care much one way or the other, and they'll get the biggest vehicle that they can. This dramatically increases the addition of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Another thing, um, as our climate warms, we spend more money on air conditioning. For reasons I've never understood, Americans like to live at 68 degrees during the summer inside their houses and 80 degrees during the winter. So we, <laughs> we, we, it makes no sense at all why it's good to be so, so warm in the winter and so cool in the summer, but we do that. And doing that takes a lot of fossil fuel. Between transportation and things like that, that's a problem. What can we do? Well, we can support extension of the corporate average fuel efficiency standards for automobiles to include uh, sport utility vehicles and pickup trucks and things like that. We should be trying to build the most fuel efficient vehicles we can, not just automobiles, but all vehicles. I guess that we brings should... us to a discussion of the free market economy probably at another time. <laughs> um, one of the one of the first rules in ecology is that everything is connected to everything else. The free market economy, or for that matter, the command economy of the, the, the communist system that, that fell apart a few years ago, um, both have ways of benefiting or harming the environment. And unfortunately, um, the balance lately has been towards more and more harm. One of the areas that we haven't touched upon yet, and I hope that you could um, uh, briefly address, is the rise of sea level worldwide and what effect that will have. Well, it will affect uh, people and it will affect the organisms that live in these areas as well. It'll affect people because the amount of damage resulting from storms is, is, is a direct uh, uh, has a direct correlation with the height of the sea. And one of the things we've seen is that when there's a hurricane, for example, things are much worse if the hurricane happens at high tide than at low tide, uh, at times of spring tide as opposed to neap tide. The height of the sea is very important. Well, what we're doing is raising sea level, and that's a problem because people have built their homes based on the idea that sea level is constant. 
as sea level rises, we're going to face more and more risk from storm damage. And everywhere from Santa Monica to the Gulf Coast of the United States, and for that matter, worldwide, that's a real concern. Um, it should also displace people who live next to the sea. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and for their own good, I hope. Um, in, in countries like Bangladesh, when there's a typhoon, hundreds of thousands of people can die as a result of the flooding. And that is a, a kind of tragedy that would be hard for Americans to imagine. And yet it can happen, it has happened, and it's going to continue happening unless we stop the sea level from rising. Well, we have those same um, geographical circumstances in southern Louisiana. Yes, we do. Louisiana is uh, the lowest state in the nation, if I remember correctly. Uh, a rise of a few inches will flood an awful lot of Louisiana. And that's a problem. Uh, the, the, the people of the state of Louisiana, though, are caught in a bind. Louisiana is a major oil-producing state, and the people of that oil-producing state and their, their elected officials in Congress have been adamant in, uh, in opposing efforts to curb energy use in the United States to find ways to be more efficient. And yet it's ironic that the global warming caused by burning of oil from Louisiana is causing sea level to rise, inundating more and more of Louisiana and threatening the lives and livelihoods of Louisianians. That's a similar situation to what we have in the Pacific Northwest regarding our forests. Well, in, this in is true. Um, I, I, as a Northwesterner, that is a really painful issue for me. I've written a couple of books on forests uh, and the Northwest, and I've seen that we are logging our forests here in the Northwest, and as a result, when there's a storm, the water runs off the land rather than sinking in. More water penetrates forested land than land that's been clear-cut. And when the water runs off, we have flooding. And we've had disastrous flooding this past winter and the winter before. We had 100-year floods two years in a row. Well, Elliot Norris, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And just a few moments ago, you said the magic word and the duck came flying down. And the last question I like to ask all of my guests is, could you address that magic word and tell us about an interesting book or books that you've read lately? <laughs> um, one of the most uh, interesting books that I've read lately is the, the Song of the Dodo by uh, David Quammen. It's a, it's a book that talks about the extinction of species and the way people are altering the planet that affects the prospects of survival for living things in this world. Elliot Norris, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Pleasure to talk with you. Dr. Elliot A. Norris is the president of the Marine Biology Conservation Institute in Redmond, Washington. The book he recommends is The Song of the Dodo, Island Biogeography in an Age of Extinction by David Quammen. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website 
www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.